Little Detours with Regina Brett, where we help you create a life you love out of the life you have. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Regina Brett. Sophie Sereau was living what looked like a dream life. At 35, she was a successful sales manager with a skyrocketing career, but she wasn't happy. She took a trip to Indonesia, to the island of Bali with her boyfriend. Just 36 hours into their trip, they heard a boom across the street. Then the second bomb exploded. That day, October 12th, 2002, a terrorist group affiliated with Al-Qaeda killed 202 people and injured 300. When Sophie regained consciousness, she felt people walking on her back to flee the flames. She was pinned down by broken tables and chairs. Her arm, back, and face were burning. And then it kicked in, the adrenaline to survive. A native of Quebec, Canada, Sophie started a nonprofit organization helping hands for burn survivors in Montreal. It was named a hero in 2005 by Time Magazine's Canadian edition for her work mentoring burn patients. Sophie is an executive coach and consultant with accountability coaching. She's an associate vice president for Case Western Reserve University, where she does national development and specializes in fundraising. Sophie loves to empower and inspire people to become the person they intend to be and to make the tough decisions that will propel their lives forward. Sophie still has the scars, but they remind her of the person she wants to be and the powerful survivor that she already is. Sophie, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Sophie, when I think of power, I think of women like you, you know, I I look at what you've done with your life, the different nonprofits you work for. I think I met you when you were working for Coleman, Susan G. Coleman Foundation, and you just mm-hmm. transformed that group. I remember being at the Race for the Cure with you, and I felt like you were like a warrior out there on the front lines. So I don't know if you feel that way. Do you feel like a warrior some days? I guess every day. Every day is a, every day is a battle, I think, in, in, in all of our lives, and, and we have to choose to you know, to win those battles, I guess. But yes, I remember those days at Susan G. Coleman, that was such an inspiring, inspiring group of women and men coming together. And uh, you were certainly one of them. So thank you. Oh, you're very sweet. So are you comfortable talking about that day, the bombing uh, that you lived through? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Kind of paint a picture of your life before you went on that trip. Like, how would you sum up who Sophie Soro was at the time? Yeah. So, um, you know, when you're in your early thirties, you think you're invincible. And I certainly thought I was one of them. And um, I lived in Sao Paulo, Brazil at the time, worked for a French company. And um, I lived with my boyfriend, uh, Jeff. And before taking this trip, I can remember vividly that I had very little number of hours of sleep a night. I was absolutely exhausted, Um, probably burnt out and living in quite a bit of anxiety, making sometimes not so not so much good choices, uh, staying up late and uh, probably um, having too, too much fun with my work colleagues. And we decided to take a trip because I thought this trip is going to just change everything. It's going to reveal how I feel. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go from there. And then we'll come back from the trip and everything will be fine. And this was a long vacation. Three weeks, was it, that you had planned? Yes. Three weeks when you're a working professional is pretty exceptional, I think. Um, So, yeah, we had planned three weeks in Southeast Asia. And the first week was just the two of us, uh, Jeff and I. And we went to Hong Kong, Malaysia, the island of Borneo, 
really, it was quite an experience. And the second week was going to be in Bali. And so tell us that morning when you walked out of your hotel room or when you walked into that day, how did that day start for you? So we had arrived on a Friday and sort of try to get settled in the, you know, in the area, figuring out where we can rent a car the next day or the next weekend and uh, to travel. And that Saturday morning, we woke up, just enjoyed, you know, a little bit of the pool. It was kind of gray outside, not uh, not so sunny. We went to the beach, sort of got familiar with the area and found a restaurant for that dinner that night. And then about four or 3.30 or four o'clock, our friends arrived. And then we just gathered around the pool just to plan for our evening, our first evening together in Bali in Indonesia. And then tell us the moment that happened, that you heard that first explosion. Yeah, so we were standing in this, um, if you can picture, in Bali, Indonesia, we were in sort of an open air bar, right? There was music blasting, there was a little dance floor. Um, The area was really filled with, interestingly enough, Westerners. There was a, a rugby tournament that weekend. So I think the terrorists really planned that accordingly um, and beautifully to pick a night where they would find a lot of rugby players coming from Australia, Europe, and everywhere else um, to come and play rugby that weekend. So I felt like it was, I was not in Indonesia, to be honest, unless you looked at the roof and you saw all the sort of grassy roof that was there. We were standing in a circle, the group of friends and Jeff and I, and um, we had just ordered our first drink. And it was a local concoction that, uh, that we were sharing just the taste of it. And the first explosion was across the street at a bar that we had actually chose not to go to. It was an Irish pub. And uh, we were actually at the Series Club. So the first bomb exploded across the street from us. And I remember looking in the eyes of my boyfriend and in my mind saying, thank goodness this is not happening to us here. And then as soon as this sentence was over, boom, the explosion occurred a few feet away from us. And then I lost conscience. So you heard this giant boom and then suddenly you kind of, when you come to, what did, what did it sound like? Are people screaming? Is there noise? Is it quiet? For a minute, I couldn't hear anything. I mean, the sound was so extremely strong that I couldn't hear anything. I mean, and in retrospect, I know that my eardrums were perforated, so that would explain something. Mm-hmm. But I lost conscience. I, I, I fell on the ground and uh, just totally lost conscience for I have no idea how long. And then you came to and you're in flames or there's flames all around you. Your body is burning. My body is burning. Yes. And how I regained conscience was um, I was pinned on the ground uh, with debris on top of me, pieces of woods, probably tables and chairs and maybe pieces of the roof. And I felt people walking on my back. And this is how I regained conscience. I really tried to, um, to get up several times. And every time someone was walking back, you know, on my leg, on my back, on my arm, on my shoulder, and I just couldn't get up. I felt, I felt the flames. I felt the fire. It was burning, but 
what really came to mind for me was I need to get out of here and I need to survive. So the pain really was not uh, my top priority. It was really getting out of there. And I remember seeing a, a movie in your head. And I don't know if this is true of people who are close to a death experience, but for me, it was a, a few seconds, black and white, sort of um, close capture of my life from childhood to my family. And the image that stopped for me was my niece. My niece, Valerie, lived in Canada and she was six months old. And I had not met with her yet. I did not know her. I hadn't, you know, in retrospect, probably never seen a video or an image of her other than maybe some very, you know, short conversation with my sister and my parents. And this is the image that really got me going. Was my I'm getting up for my family? That was the message. So, Sophie, I wonder. I've always wondered this of people going through something like that. Is there a point where you say, "I'm going to live"? I remember interviewing a police officer once who'd been shot. He said if there was a moment when you choose to survive, like you just say, "I'm going to live," damn it. And I don't know. Is there like a moment where you sort of choose? Absolutely. I, I completely believe that was the moment for me. And interesting enough, also the image that came when I did make that decision, talk about a tough decision. Am I going to stay here and people walking on my back and burn to death? Or am I going to live my life and change my life for the better and get up and get going? And this is really what the, you know, with the sensation and the decision, the life decision that I took was that. And I remember getting up as if I was, um, for those of us who come from that generation, uh, the Incredible Hulk. I felt like I was the Incredible Hulk and I would get up and get out of my way. I'm going to get through this and um, I'm going to survive this. And now I've, I looked, I, I felt like I was big and green, you know, <laughs> yeah. ready to go. That must be what adrenaline does, that that rush of hormones of, that, that we don't usually get through us. To a real survival mode that your body goes into. They say fight or yeah. flight, and you're like doing both. I'm getting the hell out of here, and I'm going to fight my way to, to health. Absolutely. Now, you got on a scooter, or you, you asked me to take you to the hospital? Yeah, I was, I was pretty picky, actually. I don't know how I was so difficult, but um, so um, I walked, and um, there were people that were just stunned outside, just locals that were just sitting on their scooters and just wondering what has happened. And I asked this, uh, this young man, um, he was sitting on a scooter with, you know, with another woman, probably a sister or a girlfriend or a friend, I don't know. And I asked her to get off from, uh, from the scooter and, and, and lend me her place. So I sat behind him um, and he drove me to the nearest hospital. The nearest hospital was horrible. I mean, I saw two trucks, construction trucks, picture that, construction trucks, filled with bodies. Wow. Some were moving, others not, maybe unconscious, I don't know. We got to that hospital, we walked in and I looked at him and I said, no, it's not gonna work. Nobody's gonna take care of me here. There has to be another place. So that's where I was picky. Wow. <laughs> I asked them to drive me another spot and then another spot. And then the third place, I said, okay, you can drop me off here. Here I'm gonna be, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with this place. <laughs> So I had like, you know, skin hanging from my arms oh my gosh. and bleeding feet. And 
I chose to be that picky, but I sort of knew what I wanted. I wanted to be taken care of. <laughs> so what kind of pain were you in? I, I know with some burns, it actually burns the nerve endings. You don't feel pain. I don't know if it's a horrible pain or a numbness. What was it like for you? Shortly after the attack, I, I'm going to say that it was more the pain of looking at how I look like, seeing my skin hanging, seeing how profound the burns were. Um, this was more the pain because I was on so much adrenaline mm-hmm. to get through this and get taken care of that until the point that I was in a hospital, already cleaned up, bandaged up, that's when the pain, the real physical pain started. And then it went on for many months after that, several surgeries, rehabilitation, you know, all sorts of different therapy. Um, It was a long journey. So you're burned over 23% of your body, almost a fourth of your body. You spent 35 days in a hospital in Singapore. You have to have skin grafts, which are terribly painful. And you run into your boyfriend again. I mean, you're in survival mode and he probably is too. What was it like the moment you saw him again? That is a very moving moment. We were boyfriend, girlfriend before then. And I remember Saturday was the attack. So I spent the night in this hospital in survival mode. And then the next morning on Sunday, he shows up. He shows up so that they can attend to his burns. And he had written me off already. He thought I was dead. He tried to find me in the fire. He couldn't. He saved several people thinking some of them might be me. And um, no, that was Saturday night. He went back to to the hotel with severe injuries as well. 9% of his body was burned. And he went back to the hotel sort of grieving that he would likely not see me. Oh, my goodness. So Sunday morning was a pretty um, moving moment because this is the time when I said, you are my husband. And all along after that, at you know, um, the hospital and all the care and it it was just, uh, I'm sorry, but this was like an instant marriage that nobody got invited to celebrate with us. But it was a very, very moving moment for both of us. That's so powerful. The moment where one, you know, you both lived and that if you got through something like that together, like marriage is going to be, I mean, you'll have your moments, but you'll never have a moment like that again. And if you together can get through this, man, you found the right one. Absolutely. And he was there with his own injuries, but knowing that mine were much greater, his burns were at the first and second degree. Mine were pretty much all at the third degree. So um, this means the depth in the skin, as well as, you know, risk of infection. Um, I needed grafts. He didn't. Um, so it was really a long journey. And he, he was there all along. He played my nurse. Oh, that's beautiful, Sophie. So it took a long time to go through the skin grafts and the healing. What is it like now for you to have a body that has those scars that you can never forget that moment. Not that you would want to, but I mean, you have a constant reminder. And I'm guessing people sometimes ask what happened to you. How do you, yeah. how do you with kind of the living with it now? Well, first of all, I think that looking at myself in the mirror every day is a reminder that I'm lucky, <laughs> that I'm lucky to be here and I need to make the most of it. 
the most questions I get, I, I get are from kids. Mm-hmm. And the way I answer that is don't play with fire because the story would be too long to explain to a child <laughs> of how this all happened. And, um, but don't play with fire and, and, and just enjoy life. That's really my message. Yeah. Well, we were talking to Sophie Soro, uh, survivor of the Bali terrorist attack. And Sophie, I want to just pause for a moment. We're at the halfway mark already. I want to thank everybody for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett and to our guest, Sophie Soro. I know you have many podcast choices. I'm grateful you chose to listen to mine. Sophie, there's so much to talk about. But before we leave this whole uh, incident and the injuries, how has it changed you kind of spiritually and emotionally and sort of the, the whole person who Sophie is? Like, how do you move forward into the world, making that part of your life, but not the only part of your life? It absolutely changed my perspective on life from truly wanting to make an impact and help others in many ways. So uh, before this life-changing experience occurred, you know, I was working in the corporate world, probably giving a lot of benefits to our shareholders, but this was not enough for me. This was more of a a life-changing experience that really tells me I, I, I want to make a difference. And this is why I launched my own not-for-profit, co-founded that with um, a physician in Montreal to help other burn survivors. I wanted to inspire. That's why I took the position at Susan G. Komen for the cure for that breast cancer foundation and really gave hope to so many women and men to find better cures for breast cancer. And then after that, it was for me, get my executive coaching certificates and really helping others and making tough decisions in their lives um, and tough choices and really finding the path of where they want to go and who they want to become. Sophie, when you talk about working with burn survivors, first of all, sometimes people, when they go through something, want to put it in the rearview mirror and just keep moving. Other people feel really called to help the next person. It sounds like you were that second person that felt like it's almost like a mission in life now. Oh, absolutely. And all along, I mean, it was natural for me when I was able to walk, for instance, in, in the ward of the hospital, I went to see other patients that maybe were more injured than I was and tried to give them words of encouragement. When I was treated, you know, physical therapy, occupational therapy, I was sort of the cheerleader out there and saying, no, no, push, push. Because you have to really regain mobility in your hands and your arms and your legs. And, and it's painful. Really, the treatments are really, really painful for burn survivors. And I would be there saying, no, 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 push, push, push. You have to, you know, you, you have to push more than you did yesterday in your treatment. And for me, it was natural. And this is why one of the physicians said, Sophie, we need to start um, a peer support group, this association that will help others and inspire others that there's life after after surviving a, you know, burns, there is life um, after that. And I'm glad you talk about the difficulty. I, I've done stories on kids in the burn unit and followed a one boy for six months. And just being able to open your hand again or to move your fingers because the scarring makes everything so tight. And to mm-hmm. learn to, for some people to learn to eat again, to, to be able to lift your head from your chest again, every movement is monumental to recover from. I remember the first time I was able to eat on my own when I was at the hospital. Bringing a fork or a spoon to my mouth without having someone feed me, it was amazing. The first time I was able to open like a container of 
yogurt or opening something on my own with my own hands was just, just, you know, you think of those tasks, we do them every day and we don't think that it's hard, but for, for burn survivors, it is. And just the several steps and milestones are just phenomenal. And there are so many milestones. And I do want to talk for a moment. You do not like to be called a victim. It's really important that you're called a survivor. Why is that? A victim has a negative connotation, I think. Being a survivor really means being the incredible hawk. <laughs> right? Being a survivor is looking at the glass half full. It's looking at the beauty outside, you know, the flowers, the trees blooming. It's, it's enjoying a snowstorm and going to play in the snow. This is what a survivor is. It's really bringing hope, light. And that's why it's so important. And Sophie, I want to thank you because when you worked with Susan G. Komen and what you led the race for the cure and having been a breast cancer survivor, seeing somebody like you who's been through so much up there and you having your own scars and women with breast cancer having their scars. There's something mm-hmm. about owning that scar as like a lightning bolt power, like the Harry Potter scar, like there's this power in your scars. Like, and I think that's that difference in a victim and a survivor. Like you say, the survivor is like, I'm a Hulk now. I'm the Hulk for the rest of my life. You feel like a warrior instead of a victim. And, and I, I'm so glad you drive that point home to people. Absolutely. And um, I think every day we have to make decisions on how we receive any message from people, right? And we need to pick their message in the most positive way. And I think at times we, we worry about what did they mean? No, really take it always in a positive way. Take this as a compliment. And if it's a criticism, then take it as this is a life lesson. I know how to change. It's it, taking it always in a positive way, I think, is important. And now in your work at Case Western Reserve University, you're the associate vice president. You work on national development fundraising, but you're about empowering people, kind of like the best in people. So you've taken what happened to you and, and you really kind of like translated into other paths and other ways you can be useful in the world. Tell us a little bit about your work at Case and what you love best about it. Well, first of all, I lead a team, a be- you know, a wonderful team. I love, love working, empowering team members to be the best it can be and to adjust to each of them because they're all very different. So it's adjusting to each of them and coaching them through and supporting them in their journey as professionals. Obviously, the bottom line when you work in sales or in fund development is to get the most sales and to raise the most, the most money. What I really enjoy about this position is that one of our key focus is to raise money for scholarship, you know, and scholarship for underrepresented minorities, maybe for first generation um, students that have not had necessarily the image of a father or a mother that went to college before them. So it's really helping them and giving them the opportunity to be successful and to graduate from the university and have a great career path after that. So it's really empowering and inspiring to do, to do this work. Well, and I love that it started so long ago with your lemonade stand, like learning how to really find the right spot. Tell us a little bit about this life lesson you learned when you created your lemonade stand back when you were like 12 or 13. Yeah. So I lived on a street that was a dead end street 
And um, in the summer, I like to, you know, yes, I'd like to make money, but I, I was sort of a little bit of an, an entrepreneur. And I decided I was going to do at the height of the hot summer, would do a lemonade stand. And I'm just like, this is great. This is a dead end street. I'm in the beginning of the street. People drive here to and from their houses. So five o'clock, I would put the lemonade stand on the side of the street and neighbors would wave at me, but not stop for my lemonade. And I was just like doing jumping jack and just like, come on, stop for my lemonade. And they would wave, they would wave. After a couple of days, I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to move my lemonade stand in the middle of the street. I sold um, quite a bit of lemonade. And after a few days, um, <laughs> the neighbors were just giving me, you know, a nickel or dime and they would say, okay, move your table now. And uh, they wouldn't take more lemonade. But the point was, when you want something, go get it. That is the point. When you want something, just adjust, adjust your strategy and go get it. And for me, that was the lemonade stand. I love that. Move your lemonade stand. It, it sounds like such a great motivational poster, you know. So Sophie, let's talk a little bit about self-care before we close this uh, podcast, because you're one of those people that um, I admire your energy and how much you can get done in the world. And you seem to be able to take on so many big tasks and manage so many people. But how do you take care of Sophie? How do you make sure that you are your best for you? You know, my new routine has been, um, I have, as you mentioned earlier, I have two beautiful girls and, um, and a husband and a high demanding job plus a coaching business on the side. So for me, I need to ground myself before anybody else wakes up. So my routine is I wake up at five o'clock. I meditate for 10, 15 minutes. I drink a large glass of water and then I put my tennis shoes on and I go walk. And sometimes I meditate some more or I listen to a book. I'm now listening to Becoming from Michelle Obama. It's really inspiring and terrific. And I walk for about 45 minutes to an hour. And probably by the time my kids wake up, I probably have my 10,000 steps in already. And I'm ready to go for the day. And I'm ready to be available to them, to my husband, to my family, and work for the whole day you know, being energized and having taken care of myself first. It's almost like, you know, when you fly in a plane, you need to put your oxygen mask on first before you care for others. Well, this is exactly how I feel, um, you know, when I wake up so early and take care of myself. Was it hard to get that in place? Because I keep trying to redo my routine and, you know, reboot it all. And I wonder for you, how did you first create it and then stick to it? I mean, and, and not lose that. What was really a motivator is that um, we have a challenge at the office and we're part of a team and we need to get as many points as we can. And I'm a little competitive. So, so uh, that was really helpful because I wanted to get my points in even before my colleagues on the team would wake up. So, um, so this is my motivator. And this is going to be for 12 weeks. So maybe let's circle back in about 10 weeks to see if this lasts. But I, I, I am committed to this. This is my new routine and it works. And on weekends, I sort of adjust because I'm just like, well, I'm allowed to sleep in. And I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, um, and my husband will, will attest to that. If I don't get my exercise before everybody is up, I am not in a good mood. <laughs> 
So I have to stick to that routine because I know it works. That's great. So what time do you go to bed? You wake up at five. So what, what time do you, does your head hit the pillow? Um, typically I start moving towards the bed between nine and 10. So 10 max I'm sleeping typically. So you're getting a good night's sleep. Oh yeah, I do. I do. That's good to hear. Cause I always hear of these crazy people that get like four hours of sleep. I'm like, I don't think it's good for your brain. I think you're like your body and brain actually needs sleep. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I get what, seven, six, seven hours of, uh, of good sleep and it works for me. And a trick for me too is uh, because in the morning, I don't want to wake up anybody. This, this is a little trick and it's a secret. I dress up for tomorrow. So that means I put my, you know, my, uh, my workout pants and a t-shirt and a hoodie, and I already have my socks on. And all I have to do is climb out of bed <laughs> silently and go work out. Wow. You thought of everything. I love it. I love it. Well, Sophie, you just have a minute left. I just want one last thing to kind of tie this together. So you wake up every day and every day, do you think about surviving that attack or, or some days do some days go by and it doesn't even show up in your life? Um, I don't think about it every day. Yeah. Some days go by and there are some years that um, even on October 12th, you know, my parents call me and say, happy anniversary. I'm just like, what are you talking about? It's like, oh yeah, that's right. So, you know, with time, I guess you forget, but uh, once in a while I see my scars and boom, it brings me back to remembering that I'm so extremely lucky and um, it's not a bad thing. It's I like that you're, I'm going to always think of the Hulk now whenever I see you or hear your name. <laughs> Don't make me angry. No, don't make me angry because <laughs> I'll move my lemonade stand. <laughs> well, we've been talking to Sophie Sabro. She's an associate vice president at Case Western Reserve University, where she does national development. And she's also an executive coach with accountability coaching. Uh, Sophie, my biggest takeaway today is really that choosing to survive and, and choosing to be strong, even when you don't feel like it. I want to close with your answer to this question. You've shared a bit of it, but if you could sum it down to one thing, what's the one best thing you do for yourself every day to create a life you love out of the life you have? Hmm, good question. I would say that it is to put the oxygen mask on myself first. When someone wants to go full speed and wanting to do everything, I mean, we're, we are so busy so busy as professionals, as mothers, we have to really take care of ourselves first and then being available for others. Otherwise, it's not going to work. I know it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me. That's beautiful, Sophie. Thank you so much for that. And we'll all remember to breathe. Absolutely. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible. Mm-hmm.